Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jeff Chang. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'd love a chance to meet you after the service, uh, especially for the visitors here. We're so glad that you've come, uh, and we pray that you are encouraged by your time with us. Well, here we are in February. I wonder how your uh, New Year resolutions are doing. You know, we are, as a people, much better at starting something new rather than staying in it. You know, starting something new is exciting. You've, you've read up on the benefits of the latest diet. You've purchased some exciting new exercise equipment. You've agreed to a reading challenge for the year. And so you begin, you're motivated, right? But then two weeks in, four weeks in, it starts to get tiring. You find yourself hungry all the time. You hit that snooze button just a few more extra times. You find yourself turning on a show rather than opening a book. And by February, so often all that motivation from January is gone. You know, Oreos and Netflix and sleeping in are, are way better, right, than all, all those other benefits. I, I really may be just describing myself to you more than you, but I think we've all known how easily we can get excited about something new and yet how quickly that excitement can fade. And this should cause us concern, right? I mean, diet, exercise, that's one thing. Those things can be important. But I think as Christians, we make a big deal about the start of the Christian journey. Uh, we, we call it conversion. It's exciting to hear the good news of a God who has loved you in his son. It's exciting to be baptized and enter into a new community. We, we, we tell people our testimony about how we became Christians. But then that's just the beginning. It's a long journey ahead of us. There are going to be a lot of trials and temptations and even persecution. How do we keep following Jesus? Not just how do we start following Jesus, but how do we continue following Jesus for the long haul, even when it gets hard? That's why the book of Hebrews was written. Uh, we've been working slowly through this book uh, for a few months now. And as we've seen, the purpose of this book is to help Christians is to keep Christians from drifting away from what they've heard, drifting away from Christ. And what we've seen in Hebrews is that the way to persevere is not by finding new shiny things to draw our attention. No, rather, the way to persevere is by fixing our attention on Christ so that we come to see that what we already have in him is far more valuable and desirable than anything else that could distract us. So this morning, uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 3, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Uh, in our time together, we are going to consider what it is that we have in Jesus to help us to persevere in following him. Uh, feel free to turn there, Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, it's on page 1002 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Uh, I would encourage you to have this open in front of you so that you can follow along. 
you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I pray that you would meet him for the very first time. Uh, Not only meet some sort of teaching about him or some vague notion of him. No, but by faith, you would meet the risen and living Savior for you, your maker, your redeemer. And if you are already a follower of Jesus, I pray that you'll just walk out of here joyful. Uh, that, you know, your life may be a mess. All kinds of things may be going wrong around you. But that you would walk out of here rejoicing because Jesus is yours. All right, so let me read here. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Point number one. Consider Jesus. Point number one, consider Jesus. In the previous section, if you remember from past weeks, uh, the author presented Jesus, the Son of God, the, the radiance of God's glory as one who is greater than the angels. And yet, despite his majesty, the Son became lower than the angels in order that he might be to us a faithful high priest, making atonement for our sins. That's why here at the beginning of verse 3, he can begin by calling us, uh, the, the, calling these early followers of Jesus, holy brothers and sisters. Right? They, they are part of the family of God and they share in this heavenly calling. Through Jesus, we have been made holy. Through Jesus, we have been cleansed. We have been sanctified. And we have been saved by God's effectual heavenly call. Brothers and sisters, if if you are a Christian, this is your identity. This is not what you will one day be. This is what you already are through faith in Christ. That's the baseline that we're starting with for for the people that the writer is talking to, for these Christians. And, And for you, holy brothers and sisters, the command here is to consider Jesus. To consider Jesus. He's not saying this to people who have never met Jesus. No, he's saying this to Christians. The way for you to continue in your Christian life is to consider Jesus, to remain fixed on Jesus. The NIV translates this, fix your thoughts on Jesus. This is not discovering something new or someone new. No, this is discovering more of what you already know and have. And this idea of of considering him, of fixing your thoughts on him, it's not just a passing consideration. This is to dwell on him. To to dwell on what he means, not abstractly, 
but on what he means for you in connection to your life, to who you are, to your standing before God. That's why he gives them this title, Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's an interesting title there, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Uh, This is the only time in the New Testament where we see that pairing of those two titles. Apostle literally means the one sent, the, the sent one, right? The one sent by God. Jesus is the apostle, the ultimate apostle, sent by God into this world, crossing that infinite gulf between God and man in order to be our savior. And Jesus, the high priest, the one who sacrificed himself for our sins. The greatest offices in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the apostle and the high priest are fulfilled in Jesus. And in those offices, he has come to be our savior. So Christian, the command here for you is to consider Jesus. This is how you grow. This is how you mature. This is how you stay fixed on your faith. There was a heresy in the early church called Gnosticism that would teach, uh, yes, you, you learn about the gospel initially. You know, that's how you sort of leave the, 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 the teaching of the old covenant. But after you've learned the gospel, there, there's more. There, there is kind of higher knowledge and secret knowledge that you can move on to afterwards, climbing uh, higher and higher up this ladder until you reach a kind of spiritual liberation. One form of Gnosticism taught that there were 365 levels of knowledge to attain to. Friends, that's not Christianity. The early Christians condemned that as a heresy. You know, Gnosticism can sound far-fetched to modern ears, but that is sometimes how we think about the Christian life, isn't it? I remember a a person in my church that I would meet with regularly. And for all the years that I met with them, it just felt like I I could never get him excited about the gospel. Uh, He kept moving from one theological fad to another. For a while, he wanted to talk about eschatology and end time prophecies, uh, how that connected to the latest news. Then later, he wanted to talk about spiritual warfare and angels and demons And then for a long time, he couldn't get over sort of the the nitty-gritty of Bible translations, the the way those translations are different from one another, and so on and so forth. I mean, I I wanted to talk to him about Jesus. He just wanted to talk about these, the different kind of most interesting topic for him. Friend, if you're not anchored to Christ, you're going to be tossed to and fro by the waves of theological fads. I think part of the problem is that so often our our consideration of Christ is more informational rather than relational. Uh, As much as we love the gospel, we can sometimes treat it like just this sort of four-point essay uh, about the Bible's teaching. And we miss out on the Savior, right? Living and active, One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, puts it this way. In the days of Paul, it was not difficult at once, in one word, to give the sum and substance of the current theology. For him, it was Jesus Christ. 
Had you asked any one of those disciples what he believed, he would have replied, I believe in Christ. If you had requested him to show you his, his body of divinity, he would have pointed upward to heaven, reminding you that divinity never had but one body, the suffering and crucified human frame of Jesus Christ, who ascended on high. To them, Jesus was not a notion refined, but unsubstantial. He was not a historical personage who had left only a savor of his character behind, but whose person was dead. To them, he was not a set of ideas, not a creed, not an incarnation of an abstract theory. No, he was a person, one whom some of them had seen, whose hands they had handled, one whose flesh they had all been made to eat, and whose blood they had spiritually been made to drink. Christ was substance to them. I fear he is too often but shadow to us. Brothers and sisters, consider Jesus. Right? Not just abstractly, not theoretically. He's not a textbook. No, he's a person. Not, consider not just information about Jesus, but consider Jesus himself seated at God's right hand. Every morning when you come to your Bibles, don't just sit down to, to read your, your, your reading for the day. No, consider Jesus who meets you in his word. In your trials, don't just pray to some far-off deity. No, consider Jesus who took on your humanity, who hears your prayers, who sympathizes with your suffering. In your everyday life, don't think of Jesus, this God who is busy worrying about the really important things of life. No, consider Jesus, your brother, your friend, who sits at God's right hand on your behalf, interceding for you, representing you, working all things for your good. I think the greatest saints are not those who do big, important things. No, the greatest saints are those who commune with Jesus closely. In their everyday lives, in their praying, in their reading, Jesus is with them. He is present. They, they live before the face of the Savior, moment by moment. For them, every, every hardship and every joy is an, op an opportunity to walk with Jesus. That's what perseverance looks like in the Christian life. So even this week, brothers and sisters, fix this command in your minds. Consider Jesus, right? In, in your work commute, while doing the laundry, while walking to class, while sitting down to dinner, what does Jesus have to do with what I'm about to do right now? What would you want to say to him? What would he want to say to you according to his word? Well, the author here is going to help us consider Jesus in the next few verses. So point number two, consider Jesus who is greater than you think. Consider Jesus who is greater than you think. Look with me again at verse one. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. 
Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Well, one of the best ways to get to know Jesus is through the Bible. Uh, and even the Old Testament, right? From, from Genesis to Revelation, it all has been written so that we might know Jesus better. And here, uh, the writer models for us how to read the Old Testament, right? He, he compares Jesus to Moses, who was faithful in all God's house. You, you remember Moses, right? Uh, rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, uh, fled to Egypt to be a shepherd in the wilderness, then called by God to confront Pharaoh and to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. He went up on Mount Sinai and delivered God's law to the people and then led them to the promised land. Moses was faithful in all God's house. In fact, that, that phrase, Moses faithful in all God's house, that comes from Numbers Chapter 12, verse 7. You know, on that occasion, Miriam and Aaron uh, spoke out against Moses, saying, you know, Moses, you're not the only one God has spoken to. He, spoke, he speaks to us too. And God responds by vindicating Moses, saying, Moses is not just an ordinary prophet. You know, I speak to prophets in visions and dreams, but I speak to Moses face to face. Moses is faithful in all my house, God says. You know, it's no surprise that Moses remains this primary figure in Orthodox Judaism uh, that, that, that people who, who follow that religion continue to look to even after all these years. But the writer here wants to make the point that as great as Moses is, Jesus is even greater, far greater than the people of Israel could have ever imagined. And he is greater in two ways. He is greater as the builder of the house, and he is greater as the son over the house. We see that in verse 3, that Jesus is the, is the builder of the house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. You know, Moses was used by God to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. But don't forget, Moses was also a part, a part of the people of Israel. This was the house that God established when he had given that barren couple, Abraham and Sarah, a, a miracle child, right, Isaac. And through that child came a great nation, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So for all that Moses did, he, he didn't create Israel. He didn't even save Israel. No, he just had a front row seat to all that God did to rescue his people from bondage. It was God who did all the miracles, who, who led his people through the wilderness, who settled them in the promised land. Moses was simply a part of God's house. Jesus, though, was different. Jesus was faithful in all God's house. Yes, he, perfectly, he was perfectly obedient to his heavenly father. But he's the builder of the house. Jesus came not just to give God's people a helping hand. He didn't just come to dust off the cobwebs and to do some sort of minor renovations to the house. No, if there's anything that the Old Testament teaches us is that all of humanity is in total bondage to sin. 
We are dead in our sins. We cannot save ourselves. The prophet Ezekiel had a vision of the nation of Israel, and he looked out on this valley, and what did he see? He saw a valley of dry bones. That's the human condition. That's what we all were at one point. That's what some of you are still today. But then here comes Jesus, the son of God, a descendant of Abraham. He comes as the builder of God's house. He teaches with divine authority. He performs miracles that only God can perform. He forgives sin. He speaks out against injustice. And when Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus proclaims, and you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Built on his identity as the son of the living God, Jesus is building his church. And he goes to the cross and there on the cross by the sacrifice of his own blood, Jesus dies in the place of sinners. Bearing our sin. But that's not all. On the third day, he rises from the dead in victory over our sin and death. And he ascends to heaven and he pours out his spirit. So that we who were previously dry bones are now made alive through the preaching of the gospel. Just as Ezekiel saw in his vision, as he spoke God's word and those bones took on flesh and blood and muscle and ligaments and skin. And finally, they became a living army. This is what Jesus is doing. He is building his church through the preaching of what the message of what he has done. And the gates of hell will not prevail against him. Moses was faithful in God's house, but Jesus is faithful as the builder of God's house. And as we see in verse four, God alone is the builder of all things, which means that Jesus, the son of God is God. He is doing what only God can do, building the true house of God, the church, which will never be destroyed Human history from the time Jesus rose to heaven to the end of the age is the story of how Jesus will build his church made from people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, taking those who were previously dead in their sins and making them alive through his word. Friend, I wonder what kind of house you are trying to build for yourself. Is it the house of, of the never-ending pursuit of success, of career? Or maybe you've just reached the point where none of your plans have worked out and you've lost all hope. You know, whether you've been successful in this life or not, we're all trying to build houses for ourselves, made up of our own dreams and ambitions. These houses will all one day fall. Jesus is the faithful builder. And he is building a house that will stand for all eternity. The gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. Christ, even now, is building his church. So why not join with his program? Why not bring all of our dreams and ambitions and aspirations under his eternal plan? Well, Jesus is not only the faithful builder, but he is faithful as a son over the house. 
Right? That's what we see in verses 5 through 6. Moses was faithful as a servant. He did all that he did, but in the end, he was just a servant. Right? Israel, the people of God, does not belong to him. But then comes Jesus. He referred to himself as the bridegroom. He did all that he did so that the church might belong to him as his prized possession, his treasured bride. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is son over the house, which means that in building the house, he does so intending to dwell in that house. He's not just some hired contractor who is kind of plowing through the job, leaving this huge punch list of all these problems undone. No, this is the house that he will himself inherit and dwell in forever. The church is the house where God dwells and for all of eternity, we will dwell with the son. And so he pours out his very life for his house. He invests all that he has into it because we are his. We are his portion. We are his inheritance. We are his treasured possession. Brothers and sisters, what an amazing picture of Jesus that we get here in Hebrews 3. The builder, the son. When we say that Jesus is better than Moses, we don't just mean that he's like a better version of Moses. No, we mean that all those Old Testament heroes, they were just shadows. No, Jesus is the substance. He's the real thing. He's the point of the whole story. He is the builder who creates his people, and he is the son who inherits his people. So, imagine a great gathering of all the great leaders and generals and titans of industry and celebrity icons of all of human history. They're all gathered together in one room, and they're all boasting about what they've done, right? You've got Julius Caesar bragging about how he built the Roman Empire. Alexander the Great bragging about how he conquered the Persians. You got George Washington, how he defeated the, the Brits. You got Henry Ford and all that he did. Steve Jobs, you know, bragging about Apple and all the iPhones that we carry in our pockets. Michael Jordan talking about how he won six rings. Mahomes. They're all there bragging, boasting in their accomplishments. But off to the side, sitting quietly, inconspicuous, there's a little carpenter from the village of Nazareth. They look over at him. Hey, who are you? What have you done? Jesus responds, oh, me? I made all these people. And they're all characters in my story. Friends, you've had heroes and models and teachers all your life that you looked up to and followed and tried to imitate. Jesus is on a whole different level. Jesus is infinitely more than any of us, than any of our greatest people. He is the builder of the house. 
He is the son over the house. If you're a Christian, everything you have, everything you are, everything you ever will be comes from him. And the purpose of why you're here is to live for him. You exist for him. He is worthy of the honor that it will take all of our lifetimes and all eternity for us to give to him. So brothers and sisters, consider Jesus. We're not being asked to do anything. We're not being asked to give anything up at this point. No, we're simply being commanded to to reflect on him, to, to grapple with who he is and all of his infinite greatness, to reflect on him as the faithful builder and the faithful son, to reflect on what he's done and how he has loved us, building us into his house. And then once you've sort of wrestled with that, and grappled with that, then by faith to love him and honor him in return. Uh, This consideration of who Jesus is will drive everything that you do for him. The more you marvel at who he is, the more his commands will not be a burden. No, they're going to be a joy. If you find yourself struggling to obey his commands, this is where you begin. Consider Jesus. He really is someone, if you could just see him for who he is, he is really someone that you would, you would say, yes, yes, he is worth obeying. He is worth giving up everything to follow. The builder, the son, pray that the spirit would open your eyes to his greatness and his love. If you're not a Christian, more than anything else, we want you to meet Jesus. Uh, not a set of ideas, not a set of rules or steps to improve your life. No, no, meet the Savior. Meet Jesus, the, the person who is alive today and who looks at you with compassion and mercy. God in the flesh, he, he gave his life to pay the punishment of your sin and yet who conquered your sin so that you may have life evermore. Hear his call to you even this morning. If you'll repent of your sin and trust in him, you will be saved. Well, we're not here to manipulate you into a decision. Uh, We just want you to meet Jesus for yourself. And one of the best ways to do that is to read his word, to encounter him in uh, the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one that's in the pews. uh, And and to help you read the Bible, we would love even this week to find someone in this church to meet with you and read one of the gospels uh, with you and help you think about who Jesus is for you. So come talk with me after the service. We'd love to be of help to you in helping you meet this wonderful person. But you don't even have to do that. If even right now you can place your trust in Jesus as the living savior for your sin. And this brings us to our final point. Point number three, Jesus is worth holding on to whatever the cost. Jesus is worth holding on to whatever the cost. Look at verse six. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting in our hope. You know, the, the if here is scary. 
Right? Hebrews is filled with warnings about what it means if we fail to persevere. We're going to have a chance to think about those warnings in the coming uh, sections here in, in future weeks. But for now, here's what I'll say. First of all, praise God that Jesus is the builder and not us, right? Which means that whatever Jesus begins, he will see it to completion. Uh, If he has begun a work in you, then he will bring you safely to himself in the end. Now, his house is going to be perfect. There are not going to be any missing shingles or bricks left out. No, every, every piece will be in its proper place. And Jesus' work of, sal- of salvation is so perfect that all those who belong to him will hold fast to him to the very end. That's why he gives us his spirit. So the if here means that we must hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and hope to the very end. And that's true because that's how great Jesus is. When he saves, he saves us truly and finally. You know, if you only had to hold fast to Jesus for 10 years or 40 years and then you can move on to something better, then Jesus would not be the builder and the son. No, but if Jesus truly is God, then there's there's nothing better to move on to. To follow Jesus is to be convinced that he is the greatest treasure in all the universe for all of eternity. Therefore, the goal for us is faith, to hold on Hold fast to Jesus by faith. By faith, we hold fast to Christ and all that he is for us. You know, be be careful not to turn this command to consider Jesus as some kind of like, you know, merit that you earn before God or some kind of like mental gymnastics by which you make yourself stronger by your own strength. No, the, the goal of all this considering of Jesus should be that then in humility... And faith, we receive him. We cling to him. We depend on him. And we receive all that he has to offer. So, so what does it look like for us to hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and hope? Well, holding fast to our boasting and hope, here in Hebrews, whenever the writer talks about hope, he's referring to our, our new covenant relationship with the living Christ. Right? Through Jesus, our faithful high priest, our sins are forgiven. We are now loved and accepted by God. So holding on to Jesus means holding on to that hope. What does he say are boasting and hope? Well, I think he says that because the gospel is an audacious thing for us to believe in. Right? It's knowing how you've lived this week. It's an audacious thing to believe that you are loved by God and that your sins are forgiven. You know, the temptation that we fall into because we know our sin, we know that we sin repeatedly, even grievously. So the temptation is for us to think, well, God doesn't love me. Christ can't be that faithful of a high priest. No, I better clean myself up. I better, I better grovel for at least a few days before I feel I can give myself permission to feel good about the gospel. Friend, you know, that that may make sense to our works-driven heart, but that's the voice of Satan. Faith says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
Jesus came to justify the ungodly. You know, the foundation of our hope has always been grace. And so even though we mess up time and time again, our hope was never anchored in our performance. Our hope is anchored in Christ. Holding fast to our boasting and hope means that Jesus alone is our hope. His righteousness, his obedience, his acceptance by the Father. Any hope that we have rests in him. And therefore, we can boast in hope. Because in doing so, we're boasting in Christ. Right? Because of Christ, yes, God loves me. Because of Christ, of course God forgives me. Because of Christ, of course God accepts me. And because of Christ, he will bring me into his presence. No, it's not because of anything in you. No, because of Jesus. So friends, hold fast to your boasting and hope. Don't live like a slave anymore. Don't live as if Christ has not triumphed over your sin and crushed Satan's head in your life. You know, we're like these orphans who have been adopted into the king's family, but we still go around in rags. We still go around wondering if we're ever going to get enough to eat, acting like we need to earn the king's favor. Oh, that's no way to boast in the king who's adopted you. No, live in the boast of what Christ has done for you. Don't go around moping, wondering if your sins are forgiven. Don't, don't despair thinking that Christ will not overcome your sin and conform you to his image. Don't go, don't go around acting like this world is all that there is. That Christ won't one day destroy all evil. That there isn't a paradise coming. No, that's no way for a Christian to live. Boast in all that is yours in Christ. Your justification, your sanctification, your glorification, all these are yours. And the best way to hold fast to that faith is by doing it with one another, by doing it together. I think that's what's going on in the second uh, hold fast, holding fast to our confidence. Because this idea of confidence in the book of Hebrews is always associated with taking a public stand with boldness and confidence, identifying yourself as one of Christ's followers. And we never identify ourselves just kind of all by ourselves. No, but, but we identify ourselves with Christ's followers by taking an open stand with the church, uh, even amid persecution. Uh, feel free to turn quickly to, to Hebrews 10, verse 32. The writer says this, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Do not throw away your confidence. Right? That, that publicly associating with the people of God. It seems popular these days to bash the church, uh, especially on social media. Uh, there are some people who have built their platforms on pointing out all the church's faults. And to be sure, the church has faults. The church is made up of sinners who are not yet glorified. And in this world, there will always be sin 
in the church. And yet, make no mistake, the church is God's house. Christ is committed to building his church. The spirit dwells among believers. So God forbid that we would ever slander the bride of Christ. God forbid that we would ever make it hard for someone to love the church. No, rather, we want to honor the church by our lives, even by our public association with the church, saying, yep, these are my people. Right? These are the people who I, this is my family. This is who I identify with. For these early Christians, joining the church meant going to jail and having your property plundered. Well, we're not quite dealing with that yet in our day, at least not here in the West. There are plenty of Christians around the world who are dealing with that. But I pray that we would be willing to hold fast to our confidence regardless of our situation. You know, what would it look like today for us to show that kind of commitment to the church so that Christ would be honored? Well, I think for one, it would mean not just attending the church, but actually joining a church. You know, publicly committing to be a part of uh, a body of believers, right? Coming under their accountability, their relationships. And once you've joined, it would mean looking out for other believers, caring for one another, uh, discipling younger Christians, teaching them to read God's word, to pray, to fight sin. It would mean encouraging those who are discouraged, counseling those who are struggling, befriending those who are lonely, getting together during the week to share meals, to pray, to read scripture, to consider Jesus together. In other words, it would mean living life together, just as we see the Christians doing in the New Testament. That's what it means to hold fast to our confidence, our courage, publicly associating with the people of God which has great reward. How might you live out that public association even this week? If you are a follower of Jesus, but you have never been baptized and you are not a member of a church, my question to you is why not? What's keeping you from publicly identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus? What's keeping you from publicly identifying with his people. Uh, Just to be clear, I don't believe that you need to be baptized or join a church to be saved. But if you are saved, if you do belong to Christ, then that's what you should do, right? Because Jesus commands his followers to do so. And if you're not willing to obey Jesus in this, then what does that say about your claim to be his disciple? I'm not saying you need to join this church, but find some community of believers that preaches the gospel, that practices baptism and the Lord's Supper, and commit yourself to them. Because that's how you hold fast to your confidence. Up on my wall in my office is one of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon again. The world is all scaffolding. The church of Christ is the true building. The world is all scaffolding. The church of Christ is the true building. You know, human history, with all of its empires, its its advancements, its culture, its governments, all these things are just scaffolding. And one day, as scaffolding, as as rickety and ugly and incomplete as it is, it's all going to fall away. And the church of Christ will be revealed in all her glory. 
the temple of God, where God dwells. That's what Jesus is up to. He is the faithful son, and he is building his house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you. You are the risen Lord. You are the reigning King. You are seated at the Father's right hand. You hear our prayers even now. And oh, Lord, we exalt you. For you are the builder of the house. You are the sun over the house. And all things exist by you and for you. And this gathering here is evidence of your reign of love here on earth. Oh, Lord Jesus, be magnified in our lives, in our worship, in our obedience, in our witness. Lord, would you extend your reign? There are so many here who do not know you. There are so many around us who are continuing in their bondage to sin. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you gain more glory for yourself? And would you use even us to make you known on the earth? Oh, God, be with us even this week as we go our ways. Lord, be glorified in our lives. We pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen.